Hello, and welcome to the Other Tradition Podcast, with your hosts, Dr. Richard Thomas and Lex Musta. This is where we revisit our history from the perspective of the Other Tradition, where extensive interracial cooperation has always been the driver of signal improvements in our race relations. We hope this encourages our listeners to reach out multiracially in their own efforts to continue America's storied other tradition. Enjoy. Greetings. I am Lex Musta, a human amity worker, and today's podcast was recorded at the Washington, D.C. Baha'i Center on January 7th, 2018, where I was asked to speak about D.C. Baha'i history. My association with the Center on 16th Street began in 1995. I came to live in the D.C. Baha'i community that year, the same year I had joined the Baha'i faith in Switzerland. I remember when entering the building for the first time that a number of things struck me. First, there were the interracial couple, Gail and Zalalem, who were the caretakers of the center. Second, there was a huge portrait of an African-American on the wall greeting me. After learning the names of my host, I asked, who this man was, and why he was there on the wall. I soon learned that he was Louis George Gregory, a D.C. Baha'i who declared his faith a hundred years prior and had risen to the highest spiritual station in the faith during his lifetime. He also had taken on the job for himself of race amity worker. That struck me profoundly. Coming myself from Estonia, a country painfully divided by race, here was a man who not only was elected to lead an integrated Baha'i community, but a man who dedicated his life to heal and integrate an entire nation, and even pioneered to the land of his stepbrother's ancestors in Haiti to help them integrate and heal their racial divisions as well. I soon adopted him as my mentor and took on the title Human Amity Worker as my own calling. Happily, his example has guided me these many years in my race relations work. I have even had the great honor to put on a play for his family on Broadway, spoke at their family reunions in Charleston, and helped put up a headstone for his mother. And most importantly, I got to know and love the family, which continues his spirit into the present. Therefore, it was a great honor to be invited back to the D.C. Baha'i Center to speak about Louis George Gregory, who I had first met there, over two decades prior. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us this morning. I'd like to start with a story. Uh, 110 years ago, a young child was living down on G Street, about six miles south of here. Her name was Carrie Johnson. And she was part, if you can picture it, if you can picture yourself back in that time, a new generation of African-American students in Washington, D.C., who were being filled with pride in their heart as they studied in the public schools. She, as you know, D.C. was the first city in the whole country to have an African-American on its school board, Mary Church Terrell. So one of the first actions she did was she began African-American History Day, which we now know as African-American History Month in February. And so you can imagine young Carrie Johnson now learning about her history on every birthday of Frederick Douglass. You could also imagine... Now she's singing African-American music in public school. Mary Church Terrell hired a young Baha'i, Harry Gibbs Marshall, to head up the music department for D.C. public schools. 
So Carrie Johnson would be singing African-American songs. Indeed, that continues to the present day. My wife, sitting back here, went to McKinley High School, and there they sang, for instance, the African-American National Anthem in the school. So this goes all the way back to Mary Church Terrell, and Carrie Johnson's one of the beneficiaries of this. Now, living on G Street, that is just down the street from a very special event that happened in April 1910. And it was the first monthly gathering of Baha'is, which was held in an interracial fashion. And the principles of that meeting are honored here before you today. Pauline Knobloch, pictured right here. Her sister was the hostess, Fanny Knobloch. The speaker that day is pictured right here on the side wall. You see this portrait of Louis George Gregory. He was a speaker. He hadn't even been a Baha'i a year at that point. And he was speaking at that event. And then Joseph Hannon, who you see here, he was the local historian. He published this, so we have a record of it to this day. He published a Baha'i national journal called Star of the West. And in it, he said it was a successful and inspiring event at which many of the dignitaries of the community attended. Unfortunately for Kerry, the wider community of G Street did not all embrace this theme. So if we go ahead nine years from that event, I want you to take you to Carrie Johnson's bedroom on the second floor of her G Street home, and she's holed up with a gun, and her father has a gun, and they are fearful for their life. The largest racial pogrom in D.C. history since 1835 was happening that day, in July 1919. So imagine this young 17-year-old lady with her father in G Street defending their neighborhood from the encroaching pogrom. What pogrom, what caused this event? Why was Carrie spun from this idyllic childhood into this horror? What had happened? Well, Mrs. Sidnick, a young lady, was walking down Pennsylvania Avenue and had her umbrella stolen. What does an umbrella cost? Maybe a dollar? And the police dutifully investigated and they uh, apprehended someone called Mr. Cole, who they thought might have stolen this umbrella. But Mr. Cole was not the one. He has an alibi. He was let off. And the police weren't quite sure who stole this umbrella. Any of us would think that's a very minor event, the stealing of an umbrella. But not Mr. Sidnick. Mr. Sidnick was incensed because it was an African-American man who had stolen the umbrella of his wife. And he was looking for some kind of justice. So he went off into a drinking place full of 200 Marines. He worked down by the Navy Yard. And he decided to embellish the story. And he said his wife was raped. The Washington Post repeated this lie. The Washington Post asked for the city to be cleansed. If you can imagine this, horror happening. So Carrie Johnson, in three days of rampaging, these 200 Marines got out of that bar and they started going looking to lynch Mr. Cole. And they happened upon somebody, poor fellow Mr. Montgomery, and he became the first martyr of that event. They just killed him. And they passed Mr. Neal, and they just killed him. And this rampage went on through the city for three days. So Carrie, in her room, she had already seen what had happened in St. Louis, in Chicago. She had already seen that the violence included even the police attacking the community. So the D.C. community knew what they were up against. They had seen what had been happening in this red-hot summer. So Carrie was defending her community. They knew everyone in her community was African-American. So they said, we're at the end of the street. We're going to protect it. Stay out! But Mr. Wilson and some other European Americans wouldn't stay out. 
and they did not like the fact that these people were defending their community. So they went charging into her room, up on the second floor, shots were exchanged, Mr. Wilson fell and died, Carrie got shot, her father got shot, but they both survived. Now, what is so interesting about Carrie's life is for some reason, the district attorney chose to make her the blame for this whole thing. She was not involved with the umbrella. She was not involved with the attempt at lynching. So they had her on trial for the killing of Mr. Wilson. Now, the district attorney would not permit Carrie to say, why did I shoot Mr. Wilson? Her motive was not permitted to be said in the courtroom. But the African-American community of D.C. rose up. You'll see the title of every African-American newspaper at the time was Save Our Little Girl. And they rose a great fund, so she had great legal representation. And they challenged this court ruling and went to the federal court of D.C. And Judge Sidden heard this. And federal Judge Sidden said, yes, you can explain your motive. And she explained that she was doing self-defense. And the district attorney dropped all charges. And this fills me with a sense of justice. In an era where lynching was commonplace, an African-American girl who defended herself against this horrific pogrom was let off. And I ask you to consider, is this just an anomaly of history? Or is this, in fact, another strain of our history, another tradition where we work together with interracial love, multiracial cooperation to make signal advances in our racial history? And I would argue it is. Dr. Richard Thomas, who wrote this book, Lights of the Spirit, has coined the term the other tradition to describe this multiracial interracial work for racial advance throughout America's history. And what's so important about it, I think, as it relates to us here in, in studying the case of Carrie Johnson, is that this D.C. Baha'i community has been working in this strain for 110 years. And we have a lot to share about this other tradition. In fact, it seems to be at the very core of our faith. Because you have Judge Sidnan, a European-American and you have Carrie Johnson and African-American working together to create this court case of justice. But you also have Pauline Hannon and Joseph Hannon, who were the first to teach African-Americans in the D.C. community, beginning in 1902, eight years earlier. And what they share in common with Judge Sidnan is they were both born outside of the United States, so they didn't get born into this sense of prejudice. But the appointed head of the Baha'i faith Shoghi Effendi, who led the Baha'i faith from 1921 to 1957, he gave a beautiful description of the core, the pivot of the Baha'i faith, which encapsulates the three aspects of the other tradition that I want to emphasize today. You have to know differently, love differently, and act differently. Now, here's what he wrote. Let there be no mistake, the principle of the oneness of mankind, the pivot around which the teachings of Baha'u'llah revolve, is no mere outburst of ignorant emotionalism or an expression of vague and pious hope. Rather, it's very specific. We have to love differently. He says, its appeal is not to be merely identified with a reawakening of the spirit of brotherhood and goodwill among men. So it does include that, the reawakening of the brotherhood and goodwill amongst men. But also change how we act, as we saw Judge Sinan do nor does it aim solely at the fostering of harmonious cooperation among individual peoples. So it does involve that, but it involves more than just action and love. 
It also involves how we change how we know. And Shoghi Effendi concludes, it calls for no less than a world organically unified in all essential aspects of life, yet infinite in its diversity of its units. So we have to learn to actually become organically unified, right? Much more than just tolerance and social liberalism. So I don't want you just to take the Baha'i's word for it, that they've been working on this for 110 years. An authority no less than Carter G. Woodson, who took Mary Church's Terrell's History Day and made it African American History Week and is now known as the father of African American history. He said this about Joseph Hannon, writing in 1941. He wrote, and by the way, uh, Carter G. Woodson lived here in D.C. in 1910 to 1912 when Abdu'l-Baha, the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, visited D.C. three times. Carter G. Woodson was living here, teaching at M Street High School. Similarly, he lived here from 1923 to the conclusion of his life. So he was familiar with the Baha'is, and he said, Joseph Hannon was a white promoter of Baha'ism in Washington, D.C., a man kindly disposed toward all races. So Carter G. Woodson saw in Baha'ism people who are disposed to all races. Also in that book, he includes a 1918 letter exchange between Joseph Hannon and Reverend Grimke. You may know the Grimke sisters are famous for abolitionism. Well, Reverend Grimke was the leading African-American pastor in town. He led the Presbyterian Church on 15th Street. And Reverend Grimke, writing to Hannon, wrote this about the Baha'is. I'm glad to know the Baha'is are in hearty sympathy with the movement to fight race hatred, color phobia, not only in this country, but all over the world. The fight is on, and it must continue until the great principle of human brotherhood is everywhere triumphant. I'm well acquainted with Abdu'l-Baha and the great principle of brotherhood for which he stands. This was in March of 1918, a year before the pogrom. So that just goes to show you that other outside sources recognized in the Baha'is that they were working on this issue of the other tradition for 110 years. So now, let's study a little deeper than how did this D.C. community enact these principles? Who are the people, how do these people come to do this thing? How do they know differently, love differently, and act differently? So I want to look at the life of Louis George Gregory, who you have there. Many books have been wrote about him. There's a museum you can go visit about Louis Gregory. So I don't intend to tell his whole biography for you today, but I just want to show a couple aspects of his life which demonstrate the other tradition and how the Baha'is in D.C. were living it. So I want all of you to think back in your life to your first positive experience across racial lines. Can you just think back the very first time? Does anyone, the earliest one I have is when I was seven. Does anyone else remember one when you were seven? Nobody? Six. Five, four, three. Got a three-year-old. And then two and a half. Wow, you have a great memory. Well, Louis George Gregory has a memory somewhat like yours. He remembered, he writes in his autobiography, his first memory was growing up in a room full of European-American and African-American children. He grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. He was born in 1874. How is it that he has a room full of European-American children in a segregated town? Well, 
The answer is, is that his father was what, part of what I like to call the Baha'i Regiment of the United States Colored Troop, the 104th Regiment. That regiment had Thornton Chase, the first American ever to declare his faith in Baha'u'llah. And of course, it had his father, Louis Gregory's father, George Gregory. So after the war ends, we were protecting the civil rights of African Americans. We had soldiers in Charleston. So where would these soldiers go? Well, to their friend George Gregory's house, who happened to be his father. So he was growing up with these other children in his house, and he recalls it in his autobiography as a significant event. Now, he was very special because his father was a very great man. At his 1929 funeral, Louis Gregory mentioned surprise. goes, how are there 500 European Americans at my father's funeral in 1929 Charleston, South Carolina? Well, the answer was his father was part of an interracial labor union, the Carpenter and Joiners Union. And the newspaper advertisement said, all members go to his funeral. And indeed, many, many went. 500 went, and 1,000 people were at that funeral. George Gregory paid for him to go to the only school in Charleston which would prepare you for college, Avery Institute. Bernard Powers, who's the authority on Reconstruction history in Charleston, described that school as integrated. So you had African-American teachers and European-American teachers teaching the children. And that school was established in 1865. His father also paid for his first year at Fisk. So then he went on to Fisk University, and he studied the classics there. And then his mother had taught him to become a a tailor, so he became a tailor to pay the rest of his way through school. But unfortunately, at that time, when he was of college age, no more schools in the South were teaching African-American lawyers. So he actually came up to D.C. to study at Howard University, founded in 1867. So relating to the other tradition, these three outstanding schools which created the education Louis Gregory took advantage of were all founded by one organization. In fact, that organization founded 500 schools throughout the states to educate African-Americans who were children of formerly enslaved individuals. And that organization is the American Missionary Association. And I hold them up as a kind of a role model of the other tradition. Because here you have a group founded in 1846, which was interracial. They operated 100% interracially from the beginning, so it shouldn't be a surprise that their schools were also educated interracially. And they raised more money for these 500 schools than the federal government and the Freedmen's Bureau combined. And the names of these founders are the who's who of the other tradition prior to the 1850s. You have William Jackson, who many of you will come to know, as a founding member of the Liberty Party and the Free Soil Party, the predecessors of the Republican Party. So he was a leader in the movement for legislative ending of slavery. You had Theodore Wright, the first African-American to graduate from a seminary school. And he also was a New York stop of the Underground Railroad. You had Reverend Ward, who Frederick Douglass describes as an orator and thinker who was vastly superior to any of us. The splendors of his intellect went directly to the glory of our race. And finally, another gentleman I want to call out is Reverend Henry Highland Garnett, who also was the uh, D.C. minister. And he was the first African-American to address Congress when we ended slavery in 1865. Being the first African-American to address Congress, it was interesting that he didn't just say thank you for ending slavery. He said, emancipate, enfranchise, educate, and give the blessings of gospel to every American citizen. In 1865, he was asking us to add the vote, add education, add all these other elements. The point that I'm trying to stress here is that there was an action, an interracial group is the kind of group that could think up to establish these schools throughout the country that were so critical. 
And we should know that history, and we should know these individuals who have been so lost to our history. Now, I've been mentioning that the Baha'i Faith has been working on the other tradition for 110 years. So what did they do when Carrie Johnson was terrorized in her house? How did the Baha'is react to that? And luckily, we have recorded for us in a diary a conversation in Haifa, Israel, where Abdu Baha was living. And he was talking to a D.C. resident, Miss Agnes Parsons, about uh, the events that had taken on with Carrie Johnson and what the Baha'is should do. And he gave her a very interesting task. He said, I want you to arrange a convention in Washington for amity between the colored and the white. Agnes Parsons said, I thought I would like to go through the floor because I didn't feel I could do it. And Abdu'l-Baha added to encourage her, you must have other people with you. And indeed, she did. She formed an interracial group of, of women, of Baha'i women, uh, Ms. Parsons, Ms. Hanny, Ms. Boyle, and Ms. Felm, and Ms. Root, and they formed a committee to organize this. And as they went to approach this vast subject, how do you help the city heal from a racial pogrom? They reached out to the leading senator in the government who was working to prevent the segregation of the federal workforce, which was taking place at that time, Senator Clapp from Nebraska. And Senator Clapp said, please do not make this a protest convention. Lift the whole matter up to the spiritual realm and work for the creation of sentiment. Now, Louis Gregory, who we again have pictured here on the wall, he really admired the choice of Miss Agnes Parsons to lead this conference. Speaking to the other tradition, he mentions a white Baha'i of wealth and social prominence to arrange the first Amity Convention, no one could question the motives of such a soul when you consider her spiritual illumination, devotion, and her worldly station. So Louis Gregory saw this wisdom in selecting Miss Agnes Parsons to lead up this convention. And further, Louis Gregory, when asked for advice, gave a similar advice to the senator, talking about this had to be an issue of love. He said, nothing short of a change of hearts will do. Unless the speakers are able to make the power of love felt, the occasion will lose its chief value. Similar, he went on, aflame with the fire of divine love, the hearts will be powerfully influenced and the effect will be great in the years to come. So this was speaking to the aspect of the other tradition of love, creating love in the D.C. community. And then Martha Root, who was a, a newspaper writer from Pittsburgh, she was skilled at writing and publicity, so she managed to pass 19,000 pamphlets out throughout the city. And the pamphlets had a beautiful description, of, again, of this other tradition and the aspect of the importance of love within it. Half a century ago, in America, slavery was abolished. Now there has arisen the need, because of Carrie Johnson and others, for another great effort in order that prejudice may be overcome. Correction of the present wrong requires no army, for the field of action is the hearts of our citizens. The instruments to be used is kindness and ammunition understanding. The actors in this engagement for right are all the inhabitants of the United States. The great work we have to do, and for which this convention is called, is the establishment of amity between the white and the colored people of our land. So then they held this wonderful 
uh, convention down at a congregational church in, that they rented for the event and they collaborated with. And this love was created. We haven't had happily a racial pogrom in D.C. since that time. Now, to the final point of knowledge, I want to share a writing of Louis Gregory. He is designated as a hand of the cause of God, which is a station in the Baha'i faith of very saintly souls. And I think his writings have not been put into print enough. So happily, Dr. Richard Thomas and Gwendolyn Ada Lewis have created Lights of the Spirit, historical portraits of black Baha'is in North America, and they have a number of his actual writings here, so you can read them for yourself. And we're fortunate enough that they, Dr. Richard Thomas included the actual talk Lewis Gregory gave at that convention. So this can kind of transport us all back to 1921. We just had the, this horrific event, this horrific pogrom, and now we're all gathered here together in this room. And here is the type of talk we gave. Of course, this is the talk Lewis Gregory gave. And I want to speak to about the knowledge that we're sharing here, this vision of us as organically unified, no longer just being tolerant of one another, no longer just ending the discrimination. Because at the time, interracial cooperation meetings were quite popular throughout the South at the time of this convention. And they were really aiming to end the excesses of the horrors of racism. But we're talking here, as we described earlier, we're trying to create a sentiment of love. And so let's hear how Louis Gregory uh, addressed the audience. In part, what he said, the races living side by side need each other. If even two communities which are near each other cooperate, it works to the commercial development and the happiness of both. We know the advantage and benefit which comes through cooperation when it affects two great nations. Even though their ideals and principles and self-interest differ in every stage of their growth, but today we need a harmony which is so universal that it will bind together the hearts of all these struggling elements which make up creation. Let us follow the guidance and wisdom of God. Have you stopped to observe that the clouds of his mercy shower upon all in the world of humanity? That the air we breathe is not confined to one church or one synagogue or one mosque, but the universal bounty of God supports all life and creation? The sunshine with its great splendor is not limited to this class or that class or this race or that race or one nation or another, but it beautifies and glorifies the whole realm of existence. God's is the universal bounty and he loves all of his children. He has provided for all of them out of that great love. Shall men therefore reverse the purposes of God? So this gives you a sense of the kind of sentiment in that room to be together and starting to heal the city. So this is America's other tradition, which I believe each of us can live in our life by knowing differently, loving differently, and acting differently in regards to race relations. Ask, are your actions integrated? Is your love integrated? Like Louis Gregory, at two and a half years of age, are your children playing in an integrated fashion, such that they will write it down in their autobiography many, many years later? So I want to conclude today with a quote from Abdul Baha. His final statement, in his final meeting, in his final visit to D.C., he said these words, 
which are directly a call, a direct call to the other traditions. These were the final words we ever heard from Abdu'l-Bahá from his mouth here in D.C. He was at their home, not surprisingly, as he gave these words to an interracial gathering at, his home, at their home. I hope you will continue in unity and fellowship. How beautiful to see African and European Americans together. I hope, God willing, the day may come when I shall see the Native and Asian Americans with you and others. Then there will be white roses, yellow roses, red roses, and a very wonderful rose garden will appear in the world. Thank you for joining us on this Other Tradition podcast. It is brought to you by DC Time Travel Tours, where you experience history.